1960, the U.S. FDA approved the first oral contraceptive pill, Enovid. And since that time, the birth control pill has remained the most popular form of contraception in the U.S. today. Although larks are definitely making inroads into those trends. In the U.S., most birth control pills contain a pretty similar form of estrogen, which is ethnyl estradiol. But what about the progestin? We've all learned and we've all memorized that there's different generations of progestin, right? Well, is that really just a marketing trick? Or are there some real individual differences in these progestins? In this podcast, we're going to cover this topic and go deep into the science of the different types of progestins in oral birth control pills. Do they matter? Well, let's find out now. Life is too short and too unpredictable to go through without some sort of vision or passion. If you don't know what your passion is, find it now. This is our passion. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before I get into the details, I do got to tell you where this podcast idea came from. Because I've said it before, I love our podcast community. I mean, how great is it that we can reach out to each other and not just ask clinical questions, but really just encourage each other and build each other up? I love that. Well, this suggestion came from a resident who's about to graduate from their OBGYN residency. Congrats there. And this comes from South Bronx at Lincoln Hospital. It's a fantastic training program. I know that area quite well. And the question was, listen, does the progestin really matter? Because I've had people say, look, whatever pops up in the EMR, that's the birth control I give them. Or if I do a Google search uh, and it pops up, I'm going to give them that. Uh, yikes. And the reason is you do really have to tailor this. Now, I get the gunshot idea. Look, everything eventually is going to help. You know, if you order any kind of birth control for acne, eventually it's going to get better because sex hormone binding globulin will rise and bind testosterone, blah, blah, blah. But in the interim, until it, quote, eventually works, end quote, the poor patient suffers. The short answer, as I beat it to the punch here, is yes, the progestins do have some individual in vivo differences, and there's data for that. Yeah, maybe some of that stuff is marketing, and I get it, but there are true differences in the different generations of progestin. Now, before I get into those, a quick word about mood and birth control. Super controversial, and I get it, but that's why the data is hard to interpret. Any data that looks, on, as a population level, on the relationship of mood to birth control pills has always been conflicting. And the reason is it's hard to stratify the type of birth control pill used. Because one thing that's hard to analyze is the type of progestin that the patient takes. There is an effect there, and I'm going to show you why that is in just a minute. It all has to do, of course, with their androgenicity. Now, a quick word about progesterone versus progestins. 
Oftentimes, I know we use these words interchangeably, but there actually are big differences between the two. Progesterone as a natural product, as a natural hormone, is an actual steroid. However, these oral progestins are not steroid-based and they do have different mechanisms. That's why you get into these progestational or more androgenic effects because while similar, they are quite different. While the estrogen component of birth control is most likely to give the somatic changes of nausea, vomiting, maybe some headache and some breast tenderness, it's typically thought that the progesting component is what can affect cognition and mood. It's very well documented that the addition of progesterone to any hormone therapy has been shown to induce adverse mood effects in women. Likely mechanisms also include the action of progesterone and its metabolite on the GABA receptor, which is the major inhibitory system in the human CNS. Levels of neuroactive metabolites of progesterone do increase during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, of course, and this is why or that's what can explain the correlation with negative mood symptoms in that PMS time frame. Moreover, external progestins, like those that are in oral birth control pills, more so than natural progesterones, also increase levels of monoamine oxidase. Remember that monoamine oxidase degrades serotonin concentrations, and so this could potentially be another trigger of depression and irritability. Clinical studies have indicated that changes in estrogen level can also trigger depressive episodes, and that's why things that are high androgenic, which have an antagonistic effect on estrogen, could trigger these symptoms. Oh, I can hear somebody complaining already. Wait a minute, Chapa. There's no firm data about birth control and depression. Yeah, I already said that in the intro. However, there is a study that was relatively recent. I mean, 2016, you know, depends on what you call recent. But it was a pretty large, very well done article and very well done study from Denmark. And the reason that Denmark could do this is because they have a national health system, they have a great database. But it actually was published in JAMA Psychiatry. This study did meet criteria to be qualified as a high quality study as compared to other studies that were low quality or medium quality. This study took into account over a million Danish women over the age of 14 and then actually matched them to diagnosis codes for depression and use of prescription medications based on their prescription record. Remember, they can do that because they have one central database. Well, in short, they did find that there was definitely this association between contraceptive use and depression. Remember, of course, that association does improve causation, though, and the numbers, while increased, weren't all that dramatic. So that's a disclosure. Approximately 2.2 out of 100 women who used hormonal birth control developed depression compared to 1.7 out of 100 who did not. So you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're telling me that's a change? Well, I'm not. The authors are. Other data has suggested that progestin's negative effect on mood or potential negative effect on mood has to do with their androgenic ability. So the more androgenic the progestin, the more possible negative effect on mood. Of course, one of the limitations that's addressed in there is that, once again, it's hard to stratify for that type of progestin because it was just all kind of birth control. Well, when you marry this data to others that have blamed the progestin component of birth control as its possible effect on mood and why some studies have shown an association and others have, 
All that we can come up with based on the scientific data is that yes, the type of progestin does matter. So much so that the Royal College of OBGYN, in its How to Choose Birth Control for Adolescents and Teens, recommends drospirinone, especially if an adolescent or that teen has a history of depression or anxiety. Because the last thing we want to do is make them worse. Now, if you're asking about the VTE risk, I'm going to touch on that in just a minute. But the point is, is that we do need to, at some point, to some degree, tailor the type of oral contraceptive to the patient. Now, I do need to add just a sprinkle, just a little touch of data on weight gain in birth control pills. Because if you thought the data was confusing on birth control pills and mood, my goodness, same thing on weight. But weight is more objective, right, versus how I feel. And even though there's true depressive scales that we can go through with a patient, weight is more objective. We can measure that. And what's been found is that there's no direct tie to oral contraceptive pills and weight that's different from a control group that's followed over time who's not using birth control. The take-home message is we all tend to gain weight over time, and the differences were no different between those who were birth control users and those who weren't. Now, there can be some individual differences, I'll give you that, and there can be some per-month changes in weight, as some may cause more fluid retention than others, but over the long term, the data does not seem to support an issue on weight gain in oral contraceptive pills. In general, progesterones fall into three main houses or boxes. The first is the C21 progestogens. These are things like Depo-Provera or Megase or Magestral Acetate, very high progestational activity. The second box are C19 nor testosterone derivatives. These are further divided into two families the estrains or the gonanes. Trust me, I'm going to explain that in just a minute. And the last category or the third category are spironolactone derivatives, where we get drospirinone. Everybody good? Three main boxes, C21 progestogens, which is like Depo-Provera or Megase, C19 testosterone-based, which is either two flavors, estrains or gonanes, and then the third category, which is spironolactone-based, from what we get drospirinone. In the C19 testosterone box, remember we said that's divided into two main boxes, the estrain family and the gonane family. The estrain family has to do with the first generation progestins. I know, don't let your head swim. We're going to cover all this in more detail, but the estrains are typically first generation. The classic is norethindrone. The gonane family is now subdivided into these newer progestins. These have second and the third generation progestins. That's how we get into our generations. Everybody good? So the first generation is S-strain family of the C19 testosterone family. And then the gonane family is the second and third generation. The fourth generation is a spironolactone box. In the intro, I mentioned a fifth generation. Well, that's all in development. And that's outside of the U.S. Because there's some newer progestins out there that we don't have yet. But in general, there's four main generations. With the first generation being the S-strain family, of which norethindrone is a prototype. And the gonane family, from where we get our second generation and our third generation progestins. 
So really out of the first box, the C21 progestins, which is Depo-Medroxyprogesterone acetate, Depo-Provera, that's the only type of contraceptive used. The other types of progestins, the ones that are 19-nortestosterone-based or spironolactone-based, those are the ones, those are the boxes that go into oral contraceptive pills, okay? So out of the three main boxes, progestational, 19-nortestosterone-based or spironolactone, it's the 19-nortestosterone-based and spironolactone that go into the oral formulations. Well, now that we've settled that, we have to go into the two main effects that all progestins can have. The first are their progestational effect, and the second are the androgenic effects. That's the focus of this podcast. Progestational effects refer to the affinity of the progestin to the actual progesterone receptor. Remember, that's how they prevent ovulation and how they have their effect on the lining. So things like MPA or Depo-Provera or Megase have high progestational activity. The androgenic effects have to do with the effect of that progestin to produce androgenic side effects. These can include changes like acne or hirsutism, and as we've discussed here, potential, the potential for mood irritability. Now let's put the generic progestin name to the type of generation. First generations, remember we've already discussed that, are typically norethendrome based. Second-generation progestins are things like levonorgestrel or norgestrel. Third-generation progestins are the two main prototypical types of desogestrel or norgestimate. And the fourth-generation currently used in the U.S. is bronolactone-based or drospirinone. A quick word about efficacy. In no way am I implementing that one generation is more effective than another. That's not the case. They're all equally effective if taken correctly. But remember that the different generations have to do with their differences towards the progesterone receptor or in their affinity to be androgen-like. That's where the differences come in. So there's no change in efficacy based on the type of generation. Earlier, which is first and second generation progestins, are much more androgenic. Third generation progestins are less androgenic and more progestational. The fourth generation progestins, remember that's spironolactone based, are indeed anti-androgenic. However, earlier generation progestins are less thrombophilic, while later gens, especially the fourth generation, tends to be more thrombophilic, although the absolute risk differences are actually quite small. And as medical education, I have to say it. Remember that drospirinone, the fourth generation progestin, because it's spironolactone-based, obviously has anti-mineralocorticoid activity. It's because of these differences and the behaviors of progestins that we do need to tailor the right medication to the patient. When assessing a patient's safety profile, for example, for the use of combination birth control pills, much of the decision revolves, of course, on patient safety, and that includes the risk of VTE. And that's not just isolated to the progestin type, but obviously to the dose of estrogen. The relative risk of VTE in patients taking combination birth control is three to five times higher than in women who are not taking birth control pills. Doesn't that sound terrible? But wait, there's more. Certain patient characteristics, of course, like smoking and obesity, also contribute to this increased VTE risk. So if you do have a patient that is obese and smokes, don't give them a fourth-generation progestin. Even though the relative risk is higher, though, remember the absolute number is still low. 
So here's what the numbers look like. Although baseline population numbers are hard to come by, most people say, all right, in the general population, the risk of developing a VTE is anywhere about three to four per 100,000. That's according to the CDC. The risk can increase to about 10 to 30 per 100,000 women per year with the use of a low-dose birth control pill. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute, from 4 to 100,000 to 10 to 30 per 100,000? Is that safe? Yes, because you have to put that into perspective that the risk of VTE during pregnancy is significantly higher. During pregnancy, that risk goes up to 60 per 100,000 women per year. By the way, speaking of obesity, the Society of Family Planning has concluded, although some studies are controversial regarding this, that overweight and especially obese patients using combination birth control pills appear to be at slightly higher risk of pregnancy, in other words, birth control pill failure, compared to women with more normal range BMIs. So don't forget that's an important part of counseling, not just in terms of the side effect profile, but of efficacy. These are patients that we tend to go more towards things like intrauterine devices or perhaps a nexplanon and etranorgestrel because larks just have greater efficacy. That's why this does matter. Let's say you have an adolescent, a teen patient, or an early adult who's worried about acne and wants some treatment. Please don't give them a first-generation progestin because it's going to aggravate it. Yes, in the long term, sex hormone binding globulin has a net increase, but it can take a while to get there because of the pro-androgenic, anti-estrogenic effects of that first-generation progestin. That's why, in general, I like to start with a third-generation progestin. It's very middle of the road, literally. So norgestimate tends to be my go-to. In patients that have complaints of mood instability or specific PMS or PMDD issues, then I try to stick with drospirinone as a fourth-generation as long as her VTE is baseline risk. All right, Reynolds, we've covered your question about the different kinds of progestin. Do they matter? Yeah, I get. Some of that's marketing stuff. I get that. But there really are true differences here, both in their affinity to hit the progesterone receptor and their affinity to be androgen-like. And so we do need to try to tailor it to the patient, especially if their concerns are there that are androgenic in nature. Well, let's give them something anti-androgenic. Because remember, we do need to take the patient's wishes, desires, and concerns into consideration. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We've covered the different kinds of progestins in contraception. Hope you found this helpful. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.